Hello, everyone, and welcome. My name is Jana Panaritis, and you're listening to the AgeWise podcast, where we give you strategies for aging well and wisely. And how do you do that when on top of struggling to meet the demands of your own life, you're also caring for an aging parent or a spouse, or maybe you're caring for another member of your family? Well, we're here to help. Each week, we'll hear from the experts, professionals in the field of aging, and people like you, unsung heroes rising to the occasion of caring for a loved one and finding unexpected rewards along the way. So stick around for some straight talk on aging in all its unpredictable glory. We have a great history in this country of paying tribute to members of the military. On the campaign trail, politicians are eager to highlight their sacrifices, and crowds at sporting events routinely stand up and cheer for our men and women in uniform. These are worthwhile tributes. But what about the other folks who serve our country, the millions of Americans who don't get a standing ovation at baseball games and who often go unpaid? I'm talking about caregiving men and women, people gutting it out in the trenches, defending the most vulnerable among us. Well, today I'm happy to be joined by one such individual whose story of caring for her husband is nothing short of heroic and certainly worth cheering. Denise Sleeper is a mother to two grown sons and a full-time caregiver for her husband, Scott, who was diagnosed with early-onset Alzheimer's in August 2014. Denise is currently on leave from her job at the New Hampshire Department of Health and Human Services, a leave she was compelled to take because her husband needs 24-hour supervision. Denise joins us from Guilford, New Hampshire, where she lives with her husband, Scott, and her two sons. Denise Sleeper, welcome to the podcast. Thank you, Jaina. I'm so happy to be here. Can you tell us a little bit about your background and your life with your husband before he was diagnosed with Alzheimer's? Sure. Well, um, I am, I have an entire career spanning 30 years working in human services, um, working with vulnerable populations of all kinds, with the last seven years working for um, the Department of Health and Human Services, working with Medicaid waiver programs. Scott and I met, oh my gosh, uh, it's going back now 26 years ago on in an unexpected way in Aruba, and we just happened to be there on vacation with our families at the same resort, same two weeks of the year, and we just happened to meet on the beach. That's so ro- <laughs> yeah. very romantic. And so you were in grad school at that point? or Yeah, you- I was in grad school at that point. And where did you go to grad school? Uh, New York University. Oh, at NYU. Okay. Yeah, I did both my undergrad and graduate work there. And just like started grad school when I met him and wound up having a long distance relationship for two years. And then when I graduated, that was like I had to make a decision whether I was going to firmly plant my, you know, career in New York and break off the relationship or move to New Hampshire. And really, the rest was history. We, I finished graduate school in New York and then moved to New Hampshire, where my husband uh, lived, and we began our life. So he was diagnosed with early-onset Alzheimer's in 2014. How old was your husband when he was diagnosed? 48. 48. And how old are your kids now? Um, they are just turned 18 and 20 years old. So they were 16 and 18 when Scott was diagnosed. That's still pretty young to have to withstand that information. 
Oh, it was a complete blindside and really hit our family. I describe it as a tsunami. Um, the impact of early onset Alzheimer's is tremendous, especially when, you know, you're young and you're, you know, you're of working age, you're raising children, you have financial obligations, we had plans for our future, um, we had bought, uh, we worked hard all our life, so we bought the home that we thought we were going to be retiring in. Um, we just had a lot of plans that, you know, we thought life was going to go a certain way, and then it quickly became, oh my gosh, how do you adjust and how do you plan for what you never could imagine coming your way? And it was one tragedy it felt like after another, and I describe it as sprinting back-to-back marathons, because it's everything from the medical journey and getting a diagnosis and all the things that you have to go through to the day-to-day changes that I saw in my husband mm-hmm. and the constant losses of his abilities. And in the beginning, we thought it was like a brain tumor or brain cancer because the change was happening so fast. Mm-hmm. Um, but then as the diagnosis settled in, then you find yourself like, oh my gosh, like how do we restructure our lives as a family? How do we protect our family? How do I think about my children? What do you tell them? We had to think about genetics testing mm-hmm. um, to rule out or find out if there was familial Alzheimer's, which was devastating. It was probably the worst six weeks of my life waiting for the test results to come back. Fortunately, where the science is right now, he does not test positive for the genes that would associate early onset familial Alzheimer's. So I took that as a, you know, as a win for our family. Mm-hmm. You know, we had to really think about legal considerations. Um, We had to put a will in place. We had to think about powers of attorney. We had to put a trust in place. We had to apply for Social Security. We had to think about could we afford to stay in the home that we thought we were going to be in? Mm -hmm. And the answer quickly became no. We could, you know, Mm -hmm. and not just financial reasons, but physical reasons. As a mom, I had to really protect my children emotionally Mm -hmm. and how much to share with them at different times. But in the way that I am, I I believe in being open and honest, that I could see in them that they, they were having a hard time accepting that this change was happening in their father, especially when they could come home from school and work and he would be sitting at the table or sitting watching television and he still looks like their father and mm-hmm. he's still doing the things that they saw him doing and how do you help them adjust to this is a progressive disease that you know I was encouraging them to really spend as much time doing the things they wanted to do with my husband before he lost yet more abilities and that was really hard for them because they were in denial and yet time was precious. My husband was a larger-than-life kind of person. He Mm -hmm. was strong. His personality was larger in life. People loved him. He had a contagious sense of humor. Um, He just liked... He was always very childlike in his sense of humor and personality, so people loved him wherever he went. And it was hard to see him grow, for them particularly, to see him grow more quiet like he was losing his ability to use technology, even to turn on the TV with a remote or to use his cell phone. 
he was very, very skilled at. He had a knack for technology. He was a handyman at everything. He did a lot of work around our homes. I mean, he just was always somebody who always figured out a solution and just did it. And now he was having, you know, he was struggling with how do I turn the oven on. At such a young age, too. Yeah, absolutely. And I think the hardest moment for all of us came when he could no longer drive. Uh-huh. That was huge because he, well, every guy, you know, wants to be able to drive their truck. Of course. But he, <laughs> he also was a career truck driver for Coca-Cola. So hmm. he, worked, he was employed with Coca-Cola for 25 years. Hmm. And his livelihood was around driving and his you know, his whole role within our family was dad driving us places, you know, right, right, whether it was right. game, camping, or visiting family, dad was always the one who drove. Well, that was another major milestone that made us all kind of take pause in really in how he was experiencing the disease and how we were seeing the decline that he was, he was having and the role he was able to play within the family. Was it hard for you to get a diagnosis at the outset? You know, I think we were one of the fortunate ones. No, So I'm going to say no, because we started our medical journey in May of 2014, Mm -hmm. and we had a diagnosis by August of 2014. And from what I understand, there are people who it takes years Mm -hmm. for a diagnosis to appear. And there's a few things that I think... um, expedited that you know one thing that I immediately started doing was keeping a notebook when Uh I saw that something was wrong I started writing things down because I needed to remember them Mm -hmm. I felt that sometimes you know when you take one incident or one one thing that's happening isolated yeah things like nothing but then that you know these things were happening faster and Mm -hmm. they were happening in more areas and I wanted proof. So when we went to the doctor, I accompanied my husband with my notebook. Um, You know, what typically happens, you see a young guy at my husband's age, and they, you know, they often say, well, you know, we're all getting older, and we all get a little bit more forgetful. Mm -hmm. And, you know, there are some common explanations of why this might happen at an age. But then I said, well, no, you know, I think it's a little bit more than that. And having the examples handy and written down and having a variety of them really made the doctor take pause and he immediately said you know I'm going to do a couple of things and he did a mini mental test Mm -hmm. um, and that was troubling from the results that Scott was showing and then he did a couple of other things and he said no you know he was I could see he was concerned and he realized there was something definitely going on But I think back to that day, and I think if my husband had gone by himself, he would have left it off, left the office saying, ah, yeah, he just said, you know, Mm -hmm. we all get forgetful. Right. So so for us, he immediately referred us to a neurologist. The neurologist did um, uh, ordered sophisticated blood profiles, but he also did, you know, he ordered EKGs and CAT scans and X-rays and MRI. I mean, you name it. It's mm-hmm. not mm-hmm. when you're this young, the diagnosis, you ha- it's like process of elimination. Uh-huh. 
And then the other critical um, thing that happened is that we had a great referral for a very, very good neuropsychologist. Uh-huh. And the neuropsychologist, um, the neuropsych eval was done while we were waiting for all these blood profiles. Mm-hmm. And the neuropsychologist, I could tell immediately from our first visit that he was concerned and he was preparing me for some, you know, something big. Even though he said, I, you know, I'm, I can't diagnose this, but I, you know, his report was showing such extreme deficits in his executive functioning skills that he was very concerned. And the good thing is that we had his final report just days before we went to Brigham and Women's for um, an appointment with a specialist in neurology mm-hmm. who is part of a memory unit. And so he, you know, for us, we I had a copy of my husband's entire medical record, every test, and so he said, you know, um, we're going to do, we definitely need to do a PET scan and a um, spinal tap. Wow, so, that's aggressive. Yeah, it was aggressive. Well, he said, you know, with the PET scan, you, you know... And not cheap. No, not cheap. I mean, we still have um, ex- medical expenses that we're paying off that weren't covered by the insurance company because the PET scan was viewed as investigative versus mm-hmm. diagnostic. Mm-hmm. And we appealed it three times and lost the appeal. Um, but the PET scan was positive, and his neurologist said that it's 70, it takes us to 75% confidence rate that it is Alzheimer's disease. Mm-hmm. But he said if we do the spinal tap, you, we'll get to about a 95% confidence rate. Mm-hmm. And we went with doing it because we felt that was a big enough gap and you want to make sure if you're going to be prescribed medications and a treatment protocol that you are as accurate as you can be in what the diagnosis is. Mm-hmm. And unfortunately, you know, in my husband's case, it tested positive for the proteins that would be present in, in the spinal fluid. And um, it was devastating because, you, you know, the whole way, even though it doesn't sound like a lot of time from May to August, the whole time you're hoping, you're hoping for a different answer. Mm-hmm. Um, with this disease, there isn't really a fight. You know, it's just constant acceptance and change, and there isn't a fight for a cure at this point. I mean, we, we do walks and we support a cure, but the reality is in my husband's lifetime, there won't be a cure. Mm-hmm. And, and that's a really good point that you're making, Denise, because so much of our conversation around Alzheimer's is around finding a cure and support to families of Alzheimer's patients is equally important. It's growing more important in my life. Um, mm-hmm. In the very beginning, I found my fight because you want to channel this, you know, all of this energy sure. into fighting. Sure. And it was really, and still is, supporting all activities that help support finding a cure. But as the realities of caregiving are weighing on me, I also see how little support there is Mm -hmm. for family caregivers, Mm -hmm. and I find that um, it's really important that I talk about family caregiving, and not exclusive to Alzheimer's. I think there are other catastrophic illnesses that are on par with Alzheimer's. Sure. But Alzheimer's, the daily decline and the ups and downs of the disease 
do take its toll, and there isn't a lot of infrastructure when you're this young, or any infrastructure in your middle class. There isn't a whole lot of support, and it's pretty much accepted that you're in the gap, and people feel really sorry for you, but there isn't anything much they can do other than feel for your story, feel for the absence of services when you're in this gap. We've, we received minimal respite dollars from a caregiver grant, which have already been used when we were moving because we did downsize our home back in November. You know, when we talked about the adjustments the family had to make, I I was very ready to move faster than everybody else was. Mm-hmm. And it took a really severe winter in New England for Scott and my boys to get to this all right, we're in, we're ready to move. <laughs> yeah, that's all it takes. Because <laughs> it, it, it was a big house with a big driveway, and the snow last year was, um, it was too much for us to do on our own. My husband always did so much. Mm-hmm. And um, we just, you know, you can only afford to pay for so many things when you've already downsized your income. So oh, yeah. your expenses stayed the same. Mm-hmm. Yeah, <laughs> you know? and, yep. And so we worked hard at trying to, um, eliminate our as many expenses as we can by pulling out money from our retirement mm-hmm. and um, preparing for what would life be like if we were um, having to do with less and less income and that's kind of the reality we're in now is that, you know mm-hmm. as we're I, I'm about ready to um, finish exhausting my my leave from my employer who've been very supportive but once my income is gone, it's we'll have to dip farther and into our savings to pay for Cobra and for the gap of what his SSDI doesn't cover mm-hmm. in just our normal expenses. So it's, you know, this is my husband's retirement, and I feel there's no other place I want to be other than with him, but you're faced with a lot of difficult decisions daily on top of the stress of caregiving without a break. Mm-hmm. Does your employer, did they give you paid leave or is it unpaid leave? I'm very fortunate that I had paid leave and it gave me the time to really think exclusively about my family mm-hmm. and prepare next steps. It was very hard working full-time, moving my family, planning legal things, planning you know, securing a mortgage and all of these things. Oh, yeah, it's huge. So you got 12 weeks of paid leave. I did, and they have extended my leave a little oh. bit longer because I had so much time on the books. Mm-hmm. And uh, mm-hmm. I'm very, I acknowledge that I am very, very fortunate. Um, and a lot of that stems from um, the contributions I've made to the department. Mm-hmm. The Department of Health and Human Services, They, I do feel like they've been supportive because it's a combination of my contributions and that there really isn't a lot out there families when they're facing this kind of disease. Mm-hmm. How have your sons helped out? Well, they are now caregivers along with me. Mm-hmm. Um, they each contribute financially to the family. Um, you know, it, it's not a lot, but it's, you know, it helps get, there's the, the responsibility of some of the things that, that are true expenses. But they're they're around to be able to support my husband if I have an appointment, if they have a day off. I I don't um, have any expectation of them to be a caregiver every single moment that they're home, Mm -hmm. but they know that 
their mom needs a break. They've witnessed me break down from not having a break, mm-hmm. and they have they have just really tried to rally around my husband and myself because they worry that something's going to happen to me. Yeah, we had a we had another family in our community same same situation: young onset Alzheimer's, experienced by the husband, young in age, and the wife suddenly passed away. And that was just the day after Thanksgiving of 2015. Wow. So, you know, it's every caregiver's, you know, worst nightmare right. as a mom. And, you know, I'm thinking, oh, my gosh, you know, what would happen if that happened to us? And you have to really think about, all right, what are we going to do? So I brought them with me to appointments. I brought them to me to tour adult daycares when I thought I might be going back to work. I brought them with me to meet with the financial planner so that they understood the financial reality and why I was making some of the decisions I was making. And so I wanted them to always know the truth and to have the details, you know, not only for them to just be in the know, but if something were to happen to me, I needed them to know who were the people involved, who had information, what what kind of information did they need to know so that there was continuity of care for my husband. Mm-hmm. And how did they respond? They were very appreciative of my treating them as adults. Mm-hmm. Um, but I could also see that it was like it was hard for them to wrap their head around the kinds of discussions we had to have. Yeah. You know, about what would happen if their dad suddenly needed nursing home care, and then they they got to see firsthand what an adult daycare is, and we all agreed it's not an appropriate setting. But just talking about using those words, they had no context for what did that mean. Right. So I wanted them to know, like, if I was leaving my position, that they understood why and why this wasn't the right option. I needed them to see it for themselves so that they didn't see, like, oh, mom's given up, you know, the financial security of the household because she refuses to have dad go to it and they'll take care. Mm-hmm. Without them understanding, I, I just I just wanted them to have as much insight into the details so that they could understand as best as they can to the decisions that I was making. Mm-hmm. Are your parents still living? My parents are alive. They all of my family lives in New York and New Jersey. Okay. Um, my mom and brother were just up this past weekend, and it was great to see them. And have they pitched in in any way? Yeah, my sister and her daughter actually started a GoFundMe page. Like, So even though they were far, they tried to think about what they could do, and they helped create a GoFundMe page about a year ago when we were facing medical expenses that were not covered by our insurance company. Mm-hmm. And now it's actually catching a second wind because now as people are learning that I'm leaving my job and I can't afford to pay for respite out of pocket and pay for all these other things, sure. my husband's network of friends wanted to know if there was anything like that and so um, I it, the page is still active and my younger brother was just here uh, he and his wife have a business on Long um, Beach Island and through their business and my sister-in-law's work they created a fundraising campaign so they were able to raise some money this summer 
that they helped contribute to some of the expenses we had that weren't covered. So it, different people provide different things, and it's been extremely helpful. Mm-hmm. Where can it listeners is, go to learn more about the GoFundMe campaign? My niece had originally uh, sent me the link, but it's a crazy number. So I found it by just Googling GoFundMe Scott Sleeper. We're very fortunate that we have a tremendous support network, but no one can change the outcome of where this disease is going. And I think that's the most painful part is that you have to stand in the presence of suffering, knowing that there isn't much you can do to change the final outcome. All you can do is be there and offer comfort and whatever little gesture you can make that helps make each day a little better or a little bit easier for us. That's hard for people, you know, because we're used to being a society where, you know, if we just do this, we can, right. Fix uh, it. We can change the outcome. And right. Even, even for me, it's been hard because I'm a, you know, I, I'm a problem solver. You mm-hmm. Know? Mm-hmm. What do you do to relax? Oh, my gosh. This is, this is why I'm so concerned because I do a lot of different things to take care of myself and this disease is still kicking my butt. Mm. I take yoga when I can. I do yoga at home when I can. I, um, people have gifted me gift cards to the spa, so I try to go like once every several weeks. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. I go for walks. I have friends who know I'm on their call list, like if they have time <laughs> for a walk, mm-hmm. and I have coverage, we go for a walk mm-hmm. or a hike. I have friends who have um, access to a pool and, and a hot tub, so sometimes it'll be doing that. I journal some. Um, I do a lot of praying. Mm-hmm. Uh, there isn't anything that I don't do that I don't try. <laughs> <laughs> but um, it's hard, you know. This is 24-7 very difficult. And my, like, we're, he's, he's declining rapidly. Mm-hmm. And what's hard is that you never get the chance to adjust and before, you know, you get to this place where it's changing before you get to the adjustment stage. So he's having hallucinations and delusions, and he's up a lot in the middle of the night, which means that I don't sleep very right. well either. So mm-hmm. we, he is on a new medication that has helped his sleep somewhat, but they are our most tender moments, but they're also the most painful moments because he wakes up in the middle of the night thinking that he's not supposed to be here, and he wants to go see his family because he thinks like all of us, myself and the boys, are at the other house that we moved from. And he recognizes me in the middle of the night as a caregiver and not as his wife. In the morning, he remembers me as his wife, but that's after we have kind of have been through a cycle of, you know, he wants to leave and he's got to get to his family and why do I keep winding up in this room? And, you know, he sometimes sees things that aren't there. So we've had to um, develop an emergency family plan should his frustration in the middle of the night when he's having hallucinations, should they lead to aggression. Um, We have an ADT security system that Mm -hmm. gets set at night, and he's also signed up with Medical Alert if he should wander. And our local police department has been alerted that he's a person with Alzheimer's disease. So these are, you know, it's a lot. Like, there are some days where he has more clarity and some moments of the day that mm-hmm. he has more clarity. It's a cycle, you know. He had one day where he thought he was pregnant. Gosh. And he was serious, and he was distressed. 
that he was pregnant. <laughs> and I had to calmly, without, you know, cracking any smile or laughing, just, you know, assure him that he was not pregnant and that whoever told him that didn't know what they were talking about. And, you know, and he had mm. some humor about it because, mm-hmm. you know, he, my husband has a wonderful sense of humor. So I said, you know, um, <laughs> you know, they didn't know what they were talking about. You're, you were definitely not pregnant. <laughs> and he goes, oh, shoo, I hate kids. <laughs> you know? <laughs> you know? So he, he's like, oh, I'm so happy to hear that. So, you know, we, we well, have moments where we have sure. to, like, we do laugh because you can't always feel bad and sad. Right, you to, right. You have to find things that you feel hopeful about, things that make you feel like, okay. How does he enjoy himself when he is lucid in those moments? What does he enjoy doing? So he loves um, animals. Mm-hmm. We have a dog who, mm-hmm. her name is Gracie, mm-hmm. and she is a wonderful companion, so he loves to play with her. What kind of a dog he is she? Loves, oh, she's a Border Collie Black Lab. Yeah. She is a natural herder, and so she is by my husband's side all the time, mm-hmm. and she's a big love. So it's been, you know, it, she has a constant companionship with her. Um, but he loves to laugh, so he loves anything. You know, he loves people. He loves people coming to visit. He loves if we go to visit other people. Um, it's easier now um, to connect with people he already knows than new people. Um, he has a newfound connection to his high school classmates hmm. who have heard about our story on Facebook, and they have they have. Um, you know, asked, like, how can we help? And I just keep saying, you know, it'd be great if we can organize a visit. And he has more clear memories of high school than he does of our time raising our family. Mm-hmm. So he, he loves to laugh. And he's fun. Like, one night in the middle, like, when we he converses at night, usually he's very chatty between 4 a.m. and 6 a.m. <laughs> and one night he goes, you know, it's really important to have fun. You know, fun is important. And he goes, you know... People who don't know how to have fun are, you know, just like, I don't know how to live life. And that's his personality. And that's, you know, so anything that connects him to being able to laugh about something or smile about something or, you know, just have guy talk about something, he loves it. Yeah. So that's where I find my job is my job is helping to connect to as many of those moments and situations so that he can have as many of those positive experiences throughout his day. Mm-hmm. Uh, have you talked about with him when he's lucid about his decline and how it's affecting you and what the future holds? Earlier on, we talked about it very directly mm-hmm. in the early stages of the disease. As the disease has progressed, he sometimes forgets he has Alzheimer's. Mm-hmm. But in the three hours of the morning, he has these lucid moments and he does talk about himself having Alzheimer's disease, and one one night, this broke my heart, he said, I am so sorry for leaving you. And I was, you know, my heart broke because he was agonizing and tormented, you know, by having this disease, but he knew that he was, leave, like, he wasn't always present. Um, so he has those moments, and he apologizes for not being there, and it just, it, that's why I said some moments are very tender, but they're very painful. Oh, sure. So you sold your house last year, 
And you moved into a house that was a more affordable, but also more conducive to his living physically. Was that confusing for him? Because I know change is hard for anybody, but then when you introduce a new setting like that, it can be really disruptive for the Alzheimer's patient. Oh, yes. Um, We've seen varying changes. Um, He, out of all the houses we saw, he wanted to live in this house. And our best friends live around the corner, and Mm -hmm. he so wanted to be closer to them. But the house is a great house. I mean, it's a newer home. It's very easy to take care of, short driveway, nice yard, Mm -hmm. um, fairly new, so things don't have to be repaired. And so he, you know, this this was a great house for us all, but when we moved, the change in environment did set off a series of decline for him, which I knew was going to happen because, you know, his doctors had prepared me, social workers had prepared me, and they said that some of it might be regained over time, but that there would be some things that wouldn't. So it was painful. It was bittersweet because I knew I had we had to do something because we couldn't be in a position to lose our house. But what happened immediately was he became um, my shadow all hmm. day and night. Like he hmm. had to be like within two inches of me, mm-hmm. and um, it was very. I could never have a conversation on the telephone. Like really, at only the last two weeks have I had the opportunity to be able to step into a room and have a conversation without Scott coming to find me and wanting to know who I'm talking to. And, you know, he, he there is a paranoia that comes with this. Um, but his sleep was, um, was disrupted when we moved. Um, he was just definitely disoriented um, longer, like, you know, from the moment he woke up to, like, he didn't remember my name, he didn't remember the boys. Uh, he thought they were roommates, and he thought I was a very nice lady. <laughs> wow. But, you know, um, and so, and he, you know, his mom would come visit, and he thought she was very nice, but those first few weeks, he couldn't figure out which way was up and who was who, and we pulled out a lot of photo albums, and um, we just kept going over them and over them and over them. Now he's more consistently remembers me and the boys during the day but as the day goes on he doesn't always remember us like in he knows he knows us he just doesn't necessarily remember that they're his children mm-hmm. um one day he we were right we were running an errand and we were in the car and he was like um why is it you know like why do those guys live at our house and i said well you mean our sons and he's like what he goes i have kids you know, he's like, how come nobody ever told me that I had kids, and why is it that everybody knows these things about me except me? And that was very, you know, it hmm. was very painful, you know, mm-hmm. and he couldn't understand or fathom that he had kids and he couldn't remember and that this all happened. Then he goes, do I have grandkids? <laughs> you know, and I'm like, no, no, no grandkids yet. Um, but he was having more of those moments. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. He's he's remembering better during the day and he's surrounded by pictures but at nighttime not so much it gets harder and harder the confusion is definitely um it's just much more apparent Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and there's really no script for this is there there's no manual 
for how to deal with this, even if you're told what you can do in the moment when you have that kind of an exchange what i mean what do you say i mean you're just you're unprepared for that right and we have had moments where you know we some things we learned um the hard way mm-hmm. uh, but not to do mm-hmm. such <laughs> and, as you can know, you give me an example oh sure like sometimes there were things that you um gosh he he would say something um so outlandish and you would try to you know bring him back to well no you know this is you know um you know i'm your wife we've been married for you know 22 years and you know sometimes he would just be so lost in that and you know in the very beginning we well not even the beginning i think this happened more when we moved we were trying to help bring him to the facts and now we don't do that anymore. Now we just kind of meet him where he's at and mm-hmm. we just, you know, agree with things and um, nod our heads and just validate for him, you know, what he's saying. But there, you know, there are times when there are things that we weren't prepared for. Like he just recently had surgery for hernia and the pain prior to surgery was bringing on strong delusions and um, at nighttime, he was getting like frustrated to the point where, for the first time ever, I didn't know if he was going to be aggressive, mm-hmm. and I didn't know how to handle that. Like, what would I do? Like, you know, who's prepared for that? Right. What and, would you do? Well, we talked with the social worker at Brigham and Women's, and they—that's when they told us that we needed to have a family plan, and what you need to do is get behind a locked door. You do not restrain. You do not try to. Um, you know, like if, if you're not successful in your early attempts at trying to reassure and calm, you need to get behind the locked door and call 911, and the police would take him to the emergency room for evaluation. And this is really to keep everybody safe, you know, to keep mm-hmm. my husband safe, to mm-hmm. keep my children safe, to keep myself safe. And those are not realities that you ever imagined you would have to think about, mm-hmm. particularly with your children. Yeah. So you have a place in your house where you can get safe in case anything happens. Right. And, and we have to, st- you know, most people say, oh, we have friends who say, if something happens in the middle of the night, call us. And to be honest with you, I say, yes, you know, we may call you, but the police have to be called first because what he might need is an adjustment of medication. Mm-hmm. And you, the only way to do that is to have a medical evaluation and when you're in that middle of where you can't get to a rational place and you can't reach him, we have to make sure that he's safe and we're safe and that he's getting the treatment he needs versus you don't want to feel badly and not call the police because you can handle it. This can go bad really fast, and you don't. nobody wants that. You know, I don't want my children to be hurt, and I know they would feel terrible if I got hurt because we're trying to do this all ourselves. Mm-hmm. And it would be really hard for them to be called upon to restrain their father, right? Yeah. My husband's, you know, he's 6'2 and 2'10. Uh-huh. Um, you know, it's a big guy. Are, yeah, and my boys are equally tall, but not equally, you know, like one has got a, a big build and the other one is not, mm-hmm. you know. <laughs> and, um, and it's hard, and we had to also, I mean, and this is something that probably listeners wouldn't be prepared for, but my husband... 
um, has a harder time with my younger son. And the social worker and others have pointed out that um, he is more of a threat to my husband in the sense of my younger son has taken on the emotional caretaker role for me. Oh. And it, on some level, hits God as, you're taking my job away. Uh-huh. And mm-hmm. so it plays out with, sometimes my husband is antagonizing a conversation or twisting a communication or a connection because he's viewing my younger son as somebody who's taking his place. Mm-hmm. That's his role. And mm-hmm. so we, even though my younger son could be a caretaker, he can't be a caretaker in the house alone with my husband. And that was another hard conversation. My husband, my son was like, devastated because he's been so much doing anything that he can to help out and to have that conversation um, was hard. And he even asked me, he goes, do you think it would be safer for me to live on campus when I go to college next year? And, you know, those, uh, wow. you, you know, it's, it's, it's that is a tough conversation. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. You know, and I said, you know, we <laughs> wow. could talk to the social worker about that. You know, uh-huh. so I tried to, you know, and I had to say to them both, like, I'm not sharing this information with you to scare you. I just need to share this information so we're all prepared for the best outcome uh-huh. in the moment. So your son, your younger son, cannot be in the house alone with your husband. Yeah, he, that shouldn't what you're he shouldn't be. He shouldn't be. Right. right. Particularly, because I don't want to say that it never happened. Sure. I, I would never feel comfortable, like, later in the day and in the evening and nighttime, him being the only one. I, you know, it just, I think you just, it's unpredictable, and I would never want to put him in that situation. Mm-hmm. So, Denise, you're going to be going back to work pretty soon. What's the setup going to be? I am not going back to work. Um, I made the decision to be at home. Oh, okay. Yeah, it's, uh, you know, I had to make a tough decision. Mm -hmm. Um, And this is, you know, you have to make the decision between love and financial stability. Mm -hmm. And I weighed out all the factors of this disease and our situation. And because we have retirement savings, I, I'm for at least this moment in time. Mm-hmm. It's not a forever decision, mm-hmm. but we, at the very least, I could take the next year off and be at home because right now he's still cognizant where he can enjoy things. Mm-hmm. And the nature of the diseases, as the day goes on, he gets more confused. So I kept trying to play out if I went to work and returned stressed and he's at the worst part of his day, it's it's a recipe for disaster for us all. So um, I just feel like I want the whole family to have a stable and good quality of life for as long as we can have it. And that may mean that we'll deplete our savings, um, but it feels, you know, if, at this moment in time, it's the right decision mm-hmm. for us. Mm-hmm. And you really can't look too far ahead, can you, realistically? No, we look at three months at a time. Mm-hmm. And even that sometimes is too long. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I can appreciate that. You know, when you were speaking earlier about giving your husband, rather than giving him the facts, meeting him where he was, that was so touching because I think 
for people like us, I'm a problem solver too, we feel compelled to fix the situation by explaining, no, it's not like that, it's like this. At some right. point along the way, I learned this too because my mom has dementia. She's been diagnosed with Alzheimer's. She's 86, however. And so she's quite a bit older than your husband. And I had to really get used to this idea that I needed to meet her where she was, not where I was. And I had to learn that. And it was a great lesson. It really was. And I think it's really important for the listeners to hear that, you, you, that you shared that. Um, because you really have to get into their world and pull yourself out of your world. And it's a, that's a shift. It's very hard, especially in a spousal relationship where you've shared this not only love but relationship and understanding with each other. And now they don't remember the context of your relationship. And um, it's hard. Like they were, like you know, he's my best. You know, he's my best friend. But I've lost the best friend who knew all the details of our life. And you know, sometimes the paranoia makes him think of things that just he would never, ever, ever have said to me. Mm -hmm. <laughs> you know? Yeah. It's it's progressing very rapidly, it sounds like. Yeah. That's what his doctor and social worker, I mean, I suspected it, mm -hmm. but when they affirmed it, it kind of brings it to another level. Because, mm -hmm. mm -hmm. I, I mean, if, you know, I'm sure in your situation, too, you you have these moments where, oh, it's not so bad. You know, right. We're having a good day, and right. you fall into this, you know, trap where you think, oh, it's it's getting better. You know? Yeah, <laughs> right. Denise, what sort of changes would you like to see in terms of policy? Oh, I'm so glad you asked me. <laughs> so one of the things, um, I, I've been trying to talk about this in ways that people can view that there are practical things that can be done. One thing is for people who are in a financial situation as ours, um, you have to have greater access to respite. Um, these little grants are helpful, but we're in an intense family caregiving situation. So I tried to break it down for policymakers and saying, look, I'm a 24-7 intensive caregiver. It would be most helpful to me to have three hours a day of respite let's do a modest rate of $12 an hour. And if we looked at that at the end of the year, we're talking about less than $10,000. Mm -hmm. If my husband were in a nursing home and he qualified for Medicaid, which he will, it's going to cost significantly more to do the care that he needs instead of sustaining our ability to be caregivers at home. Mm -hmm. So I know that is one thing. The second is... There are no wellness programs or specific health care initiatives for family caregivers. And again, there's a distinction, I think, from, I'm sure there's all levels of family caregiving, but I'm in an intensive caregiving situation. There is, there is no one monitoring my own health except my own advocacy around my own health, and I don't always have the energy or the wherewithal to take care of myself. Mm -hmm. And what I think about is, why aren't there ways for, you know, my husband and I to go to a wellness center where we both can work out, but he has the supervision he needs 
I get the workout that I also need, and somebody's monitoring my vitals. You, mm-hmm. know? Mm-hmm. you know, I mean, it's it's just uh, it's accepted and expected that we are going to succumb to a significant illness or premature death, and it's kind of matter of fact. And I think it's time for our communities and our and our healthcare system to be able to say there's little things that we can do that support the caregiver. Now, I don't look, the third piece is, I don't look to be paid as being a caregiver, but I do feel like there should be some kind of tax policy that helps families who are, you know, we're giving up, I will be giving up my income, our family income, it's going to be a tremendous loss, and I'm going to be an unpaid caregiver, and you don't still qualify for other programs, Mm -hmm. (laughs) that there should be some kind of tax policy that gives you some kind of a break or some kind of assistance that helps you as you keep moving forward in your caregiver journey. Um, You know, we'll be taxed heavily because we're taking money out of our 401k, Mm -hmm. and and I will continue to do that, but we're going to lose so much more money in taxes just because... I'm bridging the gap to be able to afford health care, to bridge the gap to our expenses, um, and to be the caregiver to my husband. And sometimes it just feels like it, there's, it could be different. <laughs> yeah, know? of course it could. Um, sure. Yeah. So, I, you know, I think that policymakers really need to just keep having the conversation without feeling that they have an immediate solution, that there are, there's low-lying fruit. There's ways to dissect this to manageable pieces and not feel like it's an all-or-nothing conversation, mm-hmm. but that just having the conversation, listening to people, um, and just trying to do the best we can to come up with solutions instead of just dismissing it because it feels so big and people think it's going to be so costly. Mm-hmm. Have you had the opportunity to speak with any of your local representatives? I have. I have talked with... Our governor, Governor Hassan. Wow. I've talked with Senator Kelly Ayotte. I had the um, opportunity to meet with her when I was at the Alzheimer's Forum mm-hmm. in D.C. last March. And um, she has stayed connected to my story because we're the same age. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and mm-hmm. she was so struck by, you know, our experience. And um, she has called upon me to ask my opinions about family caregiving and how is that family doing. I've stayed in touch with, um, oh gosh, our local representatives. And right now I'm, I go anywhere to talk about the issue with our candidates. So I have talked with the Bernie Sanders campaign. I've talked Mm -hmm. with, you know, Hillary's campaign. Good for you. That's great. Yeah. And I talk about it from family caregiving and not just Alzheimer's, you know, because I feel like what the frustration I have is it's very fragmented and divisive when you start talking about any one single disease and I uh-huh. think the family caregiving experience is universal and I am not here to say that Alzheimer's is the only disease. It's a difficult experience but there are other family caregivers out there mm-hmm. with catastrophic circumstances such as mine and I want to build community, not divide people. Mm-hmm. What sort of response have you gotten from the Sanders folks and Hillary's folks? Well, the Bernie Sanders campaign, um, they, they, you know, urged me to write to him. They said it's an important issue for him, but they kind of talked about it as kind of being so big and mm-hmm. not really specific. 
the Hillary campaign has actually come out very specific to Alzheimer to a plan for Alzheimer's disease, and I know Hillary Clinton is very interested in family caregiving issues. So mm-hmm. I think you know there is some momentum out there currently mm-hmm. about Alzheimer's disease specifically, but I think the bigger conversation is family caregiving, and um, everybody I know has some connection to family caregiving in some way, and I feel that with their aging, <laughs> our aging baby boomers, mm-hmm. this is going to be a bigger issue that I, I think we can't put our head in the sand. We have to talk about it because there's going to be more people who are in my shoes, if only because, you know, it, whether they're younger and hear, hitting this or they're older and realizing that, you know, it's going to cost a lot more to care for a family member if there isn't an infrastructure, and why did we wait so long to have this conversation? Mm, you'll get no argument from me. <laughs> right, right. You know? <laughs> well, well, Denise, where can people go to find out more about your story and what you've been through? You mentioned a Facebook page. Can you expand on that? Yep. I Well, right now, my Facebook page is public, and I do have a private one that I share updates on our personal story, so people can friend me that way. I am in the process of working with a friend to create a blog. Um, I've also have been connecting with the uh, with AARP, mm-hmm. um, and really interested. I've told them about my interest in influencing family caregiving policy. So I think there's going to be things that are going to evolve. I just haven't, you know, like I don't have my own blog per se, but people can find me on Facebook. And I'm trying to build a community from what people talk to me about Mm -hmm. and then try to figure out is there a way to evolve how support for caregivers um, evolves over time. Because, you know, this traditional model of people come to a group, it doesn't necessarily work for everybody. We have different coverage arrangements. The younger generation is more technically savvy. So mm-hmm. I kind of want to I kind of want to hear from people um, and the best way at this moment in time is through my Facebook page. Okay. And what 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 sort of advice would you give to people in your situation uh, in terms of how to cope, how to stay strong, that sort of thing? Well, I think the most important thing is you have to look for people to have in your life who are hopeful, mm-hmm. um, who can be helpful. Um, it is good. To, I have found um, a wealth of information on different, um, uh, they're like, some of them are blogs, some of them are message boards. But the most important thing is trying to surround yourself with ways to take care of yourself so that you can keep getting through the next day without falling into despair, you know, because that's the piece that's been the most helpful to me is you could easily land there, but you don't want to stay there. Mm -hmm. Um, And you have to find out for yourself what is it that's going to help you get to this place where you stay hopeful and inspired for the future. You know, that's it's, it's a tall task given the nature of this disease, but you have to you have to look for a lot of different things to do as a caregiver in this situation because different days are going to require different things. Mm-hmm. Are there any other thoughts you'd like to leave the listeners with before we close? Oh, tell your story. Um, we create change by telling your story. It's not easy uh, to put your life out there in, in this level of detail. 
but really the only way that we can influence change is by you telling this, your story. Other people can find a way to relate if they only knew. And um, I, I think that's probably the most important thing, staying hidden um, and handling everything yourself and being private at the end of the day doesn't help you and it doesn't help create better outcomes. And um, Scott and I lived life. You know, we lived, there wasn't really much that we didn't do that we felt was on our list of things to do. Mm-hmm. You know, we still had things that we were planning for the future, mm-hmm. um, which mm-hmm. clearly are going to be different, but we never put off anything because we both always had this sense that, you know, you never can predict what's going to happen in life, and you might as well live it now. Mm-hmm. Because we had both had experiences young where people that were close to us died young. So it gave us kind of the freedom to say, and maybe, you know, to some people it was reckless, but we lived a life that we did the things we wanted to and have no regrets. There, we don't have bitterness towards what we didn't get to do. And um, there are things that happen that are unpredictable. And this disease has shown me that, you know, there's things that happen that are unpredictable that are good and then other things that are bad. And I think that our relationship has begun and is ending in an unpredictable way. Well, Denise Sleeper, thank you so much for being on this show. I applaud your work, your strength, your courage. I'm, I'm so impressed. And I wish you all the best with your journey with Scott and um, you're a really great spokesperson and we need more people like you I appreciate that thank you for having me my pleasure (laughs) that's our show for today thanks for listening I'd love to know what you thought about today's show you can email me at Jana at agewise.com that's J-A-N-A at A-G-E-W-Y-Z or Zed as my Canadian mother says you can also find me online at agewise.com And listen to this podcast and lots of other fresh ones on the Speak Up Talk Radio Network, the 24-7 streaming and on-demand radio network that's always on for you. I'm Jana Panaritis. See you next time. Until then, age well, age wise.